The text that I would like to call your attention to today, as you might have guessed, is found in the book of Ruth. So if you would turn to the book of Ruth, if you're not familiar with where that's at in your Bible, it's about maybe a quarter of the way through in the Old Testament. It's in between Judges and 1 Samuel. So it's kind of a small book that might help you find it. And certainly feel free to uh, use your index if you need to. But we are going to be in the book of Ruth, starting in verse 1 today. All right, Ruth chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilian died. So that the women, the woman, was left without her two sons and her husband. This is the word of the Lord. May he write its eternal truth on our hearts this morning. Every Christian's life will be marked by some degree of suffering. Now, sometimes that suffering uh, is just a part of life that um, comes for no seeming reason. It's not outside the sovereignty of God, but it's not because we've done anything. I think about uh, Horatio Spafford. If you're familiar with the song, um, It Is Well With My Soul, it was penned by Mr. Spafford, and it was penned after his wife and four daughters were in a shipwreck in the Atlantic. And he receives a telegram from his wife that said that she was saved alone. All four of Horatio's daughters had died in this accident. And as he is rushing across the Atlantic to meet his wife, uh, the captain or, or some officer on the ship tells him this is about the place where the ship went down that contained your daughters. He pins the words, or at least the words, it is well with my soul. So sometimes suffering is just a part of life that's not because we have done something. But sometimes we suffer because of our choices. Think about the book of Numbers. The children of Israel are wandering in the desert, and Moses sends out these 12 spies to go into the promised land, the land that God has promised he would give them. Well, 10 of the spies come back and report that there's no way we can take this land. Despite what God says, it's impossible. Caleb and Joshua you might remember the story. They said, we can take it. We can do it. They believed in what God had said, and they said, we can go and take this land. 
But what happens? The ten cowardly spies whip the people up into a frenzy. They're afraid. The people start to rebel against Moses. And they say, we're going to find a new leader. They plan this mutiny. They said, we're going to go back. We're going to go back to where God has brought us from. We're going to go back to Egypt. We're going to go back to the land that we were in slavery. They chose what was familiar over faithfulness. They chose safety over God's promises. And what does God do to their faithfulness? Faithlessness. He punishes them. He says this generation will wander in the wilderness and die in the wilderness. And they wandered for 40 years. Despite Israel's unfaithfulness, though, God had promised this land to his people, to the descendants of Abraham, and he had told them he would be with them. Friends, God is faithful to his promises. And Christians are called to live faithful lives because of what God has done. And in today's text, we will see that faithfulness means following God's instruction. Faithfulness means clinging to the promises of God. And faithfulness means turning from our rebellion. Now, I want, as a disclaimer, to be careful because what I don't want to set out is some sort of prosperity gospel mindset, where if you're suffering, it's all because you're not doing something right. We see in the scriptures that it's going to rain on the just and the unjust. Sometimes suffering is just a part of life. It's part of God's will for us to teach us, to to mold us, to, to burn the dross off of our lives, to make us more like Christ. All of Christ's disciples suffered in some way. Most were martyred. But at the same time, we can't argue that trouble doesn't come from faithlessness. We see that in the New Testament as well. We're about to take the Lord's Supper. Paul gives a warning, which we'll read in a little bit. It says that those who take it in an unworthy manner, that's why some of you are sick and some have died. Ananias and Sapphira in a New Testament context died because of their disobedience. So what we will see in Ruth is both the consequences of disobedience, but also the wonderful grace of God and the mercy of God. Ruth is a short story in the Old Testament written probably, I believe, by Samuel during the period of the Judges. Ruth teaches us that God is directing all things. Ruth is a a very important story for us because in it we see that God is involved in the everyday events of ordinary lives. Ruth teaches us about God's redemption and how he will restore the line of Elimelech. And out of this line, out of this line with rebellion and, and the inclusion of Gentiles will come King David. And as we talked about with the kids this morning, ultimately out of this line will come the greater David, King Jesus. Ruth's story shows us that our actions have consequences and disobedience results in God's judgment. But Ruth also shows us that God is gracious and that he forgives those who turn to him. In Hebrew, there's a word that 
is a beautiful word. Sarah and I actually know, have a friend who's named after this word, and it's hesed. And it is God's steadfast loyalty, his covenant love. And we're going to see God's hesed all throughout the book of Ruth. And as we look at this book, today sort of sets the stage for God's hesed, because we see in these first chapters the disobedience. But throughout the rest of the book, we're going to see God's sovereign hesed love. And we should kind of look at some of the main characters as we get started. We have this guy, Elimelech, and he's an Israelite. He's an Israel man. He lives in Bethlehem, and he takes his family to Judah because, from Judah to Moab because there's a famine. And then there's Naomi, his wife, an Israelite woman from Judah, and she loses her husband, Elimelech, along with their two sons while they're in Moab. Then we have Ruth, who's a Moabite woman who marries one of Naomi's sons. But interestingly, spoiler alert, she's one of only four women mentioned in Jesus' genealogy in the book of Matthew. And she's a, not even an Israelite. Then we have Boaz, who we haven't met yet, but we'll meet him in the coming weeks. And he's a relative of Naomi, an Israelite, who's, who's right now in our point in the story back in Israel, in Judah. And he is one that can redeem the fallen line of Elimelech. And we'll talk more about what that means as we go along in the coming weeks. But what we see in this story is that God is always faithful. And God calls his children to faithfulness because of what he has done for them. Faithfulness means clinging to God's instruction or following God's instruction. Would you look at me at the very first part of verse 1? In the days when the judges ruled. And we can stop right there. Because that's a very important fact for our story. The writer keys us into a very important point at the very beginning of the story. When the judges ruled. What do we know about the time of the judges? Well, the time of the judges was a turbulent time in Israel's history. It's a dark blemish on the timeline of Israel. It's a time of moral depravity and apostasy, and we see it as a time when everyone did what? What was right in their own eyes, right? You guys know. It's a common phrase. Is if you haven't read Judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They did what seemed right to them. And rather than following God's instruction, we see that Israel did what they desired. They did according to their personal understanding. They did according to what they thought was right. And in Ruth, we see that because of Israel's faithlessness to the covenant, God sends a famine to Bethlehem. Famines in the Old Testament are often tied to curses of the Mosaic covenant, the covenant that Israel was under during this time. And Israel was disloyal to the covenant. And as one commentator said, the word Bethlehem, means house of bread, but God had turned it into a house of crumbs because of their disobedience. Rather than follow God's instruction, they did what was right in their own eyes, selfishness. We see this same thing illustrated in a man we read about last week, Diatrophes, right, in Third John. You remember what Diatrophes did? Well, John said Diatrophes liked to put himself first. He rejected 
John's authority as an apostle, John's writing letters as, as he is commanded and commissioned by Christ to teach the church, right? So he's writing instruction to the church, and Diotrephes is blocking that. He's keeping that from the people, this, this spirit-inspired instruction through an apostle. He's rejecting John's authority. He's spreading malicious gossip. So rather than following instructions, God's instruction through John, he's putting himself first. He's doing what's right in his eyes. But as new covenant believers, friends, we are called to follow God's instruction. We are called to follow God's word. We are called to apply God's word to our life. It is inerrant, which we all believe or confess to believe as Southern Baptists, but it is also sufficient. If it is perfect in every way, then it also applies to us. If somebody was saying, I think it was maybe the men's lunch this week, they said it's so amazing the way God's word is that it applies to every culture and every context and every time in life. So the word of God that applies to us here in 2022 in Ketchikan, Alaska, is perfect and narrow and applies to someone in China in 1327. We are called to submit to and apply God's word. And I see an example of this in the New Testament in our Lord. We see Christ is tempted by Satan. And every time that he is tempted, he refutes the devil with scripture. Jesus, the devil tells Jesus to turn stones to bread and Jesus quotes, Deuteronomy 8.3. The devil tells Jesus to jump from the pinnacle of the temple, and Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6.16. The devil promises to give Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, and Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6.13. Here we have God in the flesh, our Lord, the one that died for us, the one that was there when everything was created. All things are created through him. He has the ability and the authority to just say something to the devil. And as an example to us, what does he do? Refuse the devil with the Bible. Friends, unlike the period of Judges, we are called to be faithful to God's instruction. Faithfulness means following God's instruction. And faithfulness means clinging to the promises of God. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons, the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. So here in our story, we know it's the, the period of the judges, and we meet a man named Elimelech. And he has a wife and two sons. And this guy is at a crossroads, right? Either he can stay in Judah, he can ride out the famine in the promised land, or he can go to the pagan country of Moab, he can go to the safety of the heathen. In our day, we may sympathize with Elimelech. 
we may read this as 2022 20, uh, believers and just say, well, I mean, the guy is just trying to feed his family. There's a famine. They got bread over there. There's no bread in God's land. Let's go over to Moab. It's not that big a deal. But friends, we must understand that in the old covenant, this was not a neutral decision. This was not just let's go over to the next state and buy some stuff and come back. This is not just let's hop on the boat and run down to Canada and pick something up and come back to Ketchikan. We need to remember a few things about Moab. Moab was founded by the descendants of Lot, a family from an incestuous relationship. Their king hired Balaam to curse Israel in numbers. You remember back during Advent, we talked about this story and how the king hired Balaam to go and to curse the children of Israel. That was the king of Moab. Their women had tempted Israelite men away from Yahweh, the one true and living God. Recently in history, Moab had oppressed Israel. And in their religion, there were elements of polytheism and even child sacrifice. By going to Moab for security, Elimelech was essentially defecting to the enemy. (coughs) He was going backwards. God had given Israel this land, and he demonstrated he did not trust the promises of God by going back, by going backwards. And he did not just visit Moab. The end of verse 2 says what? He remained there. He put down his tent stakes. He took off his boots. He was going to stay a little while. He remained in this pagan, godless country. Elimelech's decision was sinful. He did what was right in his own eyes, and his death, as one commentator says, must be seen as divine punishment. Elimelech did not cling to the promises of God. Instead, he sought the comfort of the godless. He thought the road to Moab was a road to plenty, but instead it was a road to the grave. Matthew Henry says that just as Israel's disobedience brought famine, Elimelech's and his son's disobedience brought death. Both lacked of trust in the promises of God. And friends, we must, as New Testament believers, cling to the promises of God no matter what. Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold to the confession of our hope without wavering, because he who is promised is faithful. We read in Romans 8, a, a chapter that is, is treasured by us all as, as New Testament believers, but we read there that there is nothing, not sword, not famine, not persecution, that can separate us from the love of God. And the Gettys capture this theme in a song when they say, from breaking of the dawn to setting of the sun, I will stand on every promise of your word. Words of power, strong to save, that which will never pass away I will stand on every promise of your word, for your covenant is sure, and on this I am secure. I will stand on every promise of your word. Friends, clinging to the promises of God is a sign of faithfulness. And faithfulness means turning from our rebellion. Look with me at verses 3 and 5. 
But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So the first thing we see is Elimelech dies. He dies first, and, it, and if you read the text, it says that she was left without her husband. She was a remnant without her husband. At this point, they could have repented of their decision to defect to Moab and gone home. Naomi and her sons could have packed up and gone back to Israel. They could have gone back to the promised land of Abraham, back to God. But instead, they remained. They stayed. Not only did they take off their boots, they took up pagan women. They married local girls. <coughs> For them to remain outside required less effort. Isn't that true? Oftentimes repentance is hard. And to remain outside of the promised land was just easier. And because of their stubborn unrepentance, Malon and Kilion's fate was the same as their father's. And now we read Naomi is without her husband and without her two sons. She's destitute. She's got two daughters-in-laws and no one to take care of her. Because you see, in those days, a woman didn't have a whole lot of rights. In those days, when a man died, his fortune would have gone to her two sons, I mean, to the, to the boys, and she would have been dependent on her family to take care of her. And so with no men in her family, whatever she had at that moment is all she was going to have. <coughs> Excuse me. Elimelech should not have gone to Moab, and the remnant of the family should have returned after Elimelech's death. But repentance, admitting you're wrong, is hard. It is harder than doubling down on your sin. But next week, we are going to see that Bethlehem turned back to God, and God restored blessing there in that old covenant context. The famine ended, and Naomi will decide to swallow her pride and return back to the covenant community. And what we see in the book of Ruth is that those who turn to a gracious and merciful God will find a God that is ready to forgive them. In the New Testament context, we can't help but think of the prodigal son. We all know the story. One son comes and says, Dad, give me my inheritance. And he goes and he wrecks it all and he finds himself feeding pigs, which is like not what you want to be doing if you're an Israelite man, is messing around with pigs. And he says, I'm going to go back. I'm going to swallow my pride. I'm going to admit that I'm wrong. And I'm going to go back to my father and I'll just be a servant at his house because that's better than doing this, because my daddy's servants eat better than I'm eating right now. And what happens when he goes? Is the dad sitting on the porch going, ah, that looks like that no-account son I have. No, he sees him and he runs to meet him. 
And how often is that for us as well? When we find ourselves off and wavered, when we repent, we find a God who is ready to receive us. And the story of Ruth was going to teach us much about that. As by way of application, we find in this text three things we should do as the New Covenant community living in a period of judges. First, as the New Covenant community, we must follow God's instruction. We must follow God's instruction. As I said a few weeks ago, as Christians, the scriptures are our ultimate authorities. It doesn't matter what the world around us is doing. If the Bible says this is sin, and the world says it's not, well, the Bible wins. If secular counselors say this is how you ought to deal with that, and the Bible says this is how you deal with it, well, what do we do as Christians? We listen to God. If whoever says A, but the Bible says B, B wins. You guys get that. Friends, this is the month of June. It's a hard month for Bible-believing Christians. We are bombarded with things that are outside of scriptures, but still we look to the scriptures for our authority, even if it makes us the bad guys. That is our calling. We are not called to win popularity contests, whether outside the church or inside, but we are called to serve the creator of the universe, the one who has given us instruction. Elimelech may have said, I don't know this, but he may have said, what's wrong with going to Moab for food? Other people have done it. I don't know if other people did or not. But he might have said that. He may have said other Israelites are doing it. But it doesn't matter, friends, what others do, what others say. We are called to cling to God's instruction. I mean, it's the talk that our moms and dads and grandparents have with us when we're very young. It doesn't matter what Bob did. What did you do? And we are called to cling to God's instruction. We must follow God's instruction over folksy wisdom. What do I mean by this? Well, oftentimes, and it's not so much as much in a Baptist context, but especially in Pentecostal context, not speaking poorly or bashing on Pentecostals, but they'll often have an illustration as a proof text on why they do what they do or what they believe what they believe. In other words, this. Well, it's kind of like my relationship with Ricky. I don't know what your relationship with Ricky is like or not, but the Bible says this. Well, God would want, fill in the blank, to happen because I've got this logical reason worked out. Well, maybe you've worked it out in your own mind, in your own eyes, but what does the Bible say? For instance, Many of us have watched the uh, American Gospel, the second one, not long ago, I think several months ago, and Stephen Furtick illustrates this for us. I don't recommend Stephen Furtick to you, Um, but he he has this illustration, a very poor illustration, where he says, God broke the law for love, and this is his logic. You've got a kid that's hurt. You're rushing to the emergency room. You pass a sign that says, in his words, quote, speed limit. What are the chances you're going to follow that speed limit, he reasons. He says, you're not because you love your child, so you will break the law for love. And then he takes and applies that to God. Well, logically, people may say, well, that makes sense. But biblically, that is horrendous, that is horrible, because God does not break the law. God does not sin. 
the law is not something that is over God, but the law is a reflection of who God is. And so if you go with Furtick's folksy wisdom, you're going to be going counter to what the Bible says. But friends, as the New Covenant community, we are called to not neglect God's instruction, but to cling to it over the wisdom of the world, over folksy wisdom, over that which is right in our own eyes, but to follow what God says. Second, as the New Covenant community, we must trust the promises of God. Your commitment to God when in the valley of affliction shows that God has truly redeemed you and that you trust him. Elimelech thought the grass was greener. He thought the grass was greener in Moab. But God has promised, as we talked about this morning in Equipping Hour, never to leave us, never to forsake us. He is with us to the end of the age. In the word of the modern poets, TLC Don't go chasing waterfalls. Don't be fooled by the worldly peace and security. Like Elimelech and Naomi, don't believe the grass is greener somewhere else. If only I had more attentive husband. If only I had a fitter wife. If only I had a better paying job. If only I had a less stressful job. If only I had a better congregation, if only I had a better pastor, if only I had a bigger shower, a better yard, a better TV, a sound bar. If you're in our small group, you get that reference. Instead of trusting what God has blessed us with in his providence, we lust after other things and we fantasize about this greener grass, just like a limelick. But friends, I'm here to tell you that there are no perfect marriages. There are no perfect jobs. There are no perfect congregations. There are no perfect pastors. And even if you find the perfect house, pretty soon you're going to find something you wish was better. Even if you get the perfect car, one day it's going to break. You and I are called to be faithful where God has placed us. And he is going to be with us through famine, through pestilence, through anything else. He has promised that. We are called to trust his promises and know that he cares for us. Third, as the new covenant community, we must live lives marked by true repentance. Friends, true repentance is not a I'm sorry I got caught apology. True repentance is doing the right thing. Well, the integrity is doing the right thing even when no one is looking. And true repentance is turning from sin and honoring God regardless of the consequences. True repentance is choosing to turn to God despite what others do or what others may say. People will say, I'm foolish if I go back to Judah. Who cares? Let them talk. Honor God. Everyone's staying in Moab. That's fine. I'm going back to the land of my God. I'm going back to my God's people. I am turning from my rebellion. Let the gossips gossip. Let the haters hate. You honor God. True repentance is a recognition of sin and a change of lifestyle. J.I. Packer says repentance means changing one's mind so that one's views, values, goals, and ways are changed and one's whole life is lived differently. 
the change is radical both inwardly and outwardly. Repentance is the fruit of a new heart. Repentance is a gift from a holy God. Repentance is a sign that you have truly been born again. Initially, we repent when the Spirit opens our eyes to our need of Christ, and there is nothing else we can do but to fall flat and repent and turn to Him. A life of turning from sin and turning to Christ. Repentance is a life of choosing not to put yourself first, but to honor God. Turning from your selfishness. A person who has been born again will seek to be faithful to Him who is faithful. God is faithful to His promises. Christians are called to live faithful lives in light of what God has done. And faithfulness means following God's instruction. Faithfulness means clinging to the promises of God. And faithfulness means turning from rebellion. Think back to Caleb and Joshua. Everyone else said, oh, we're going to get killed if we go into this promised land. They're giants. There's no way we can take this. But Caleb and Joshua said, my God said that's where we're supposed to go. And say that exactly. I'm inferring. But Caleb and Joshua said, let's go. Let's take the promised land. Let's be faithful to what God has said. Where do you, friend, distrust the promises of God and turn to the world's trinkets? The world's wisdom, the world's power. Naomi persisted in her rebellion for a while. We see that. But as we're going to see next week, she finally found her way home. What about you? Because Naomi serves as an encouragement for us all. The fact that there is hope for us in a good and a gracious God. What do you need to repent of today? Where do you need to turn from Moab and go back to Judah? Where do you need to turn from serving yourself, your selfishness? Where have you gotten caught up in the ten spies stirring up the people? And turn to God. And maybe you've never turned at all. Maybe you're here this morning and for the first time the Holy Spirit has opened your eyes to your need of Christ. Well, friend, I tell you what the Bible says. Repent and believe the gospel. Turn from your sin. Turn from yourself and turn to Jesus Christ. Because he is good and he is holy. And Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, who has always existed, came to earth, became a man, took on flesh. He's still fully God, now fully man. He walked the life that you and I could not walk. Perfect life. Sin never had a landing pad in his heart. He walked through all the temptation that you and I walked through, only it never had a landing pad in his heart. And despite the fact that he is holy and sinless, he was nailed to a cross because of the sins of me. And you, you and me. He died on that Roman cross, was buried in a tomb, and after three days walked out of that tomb alive. Still fully God, still fully man, in the flesh. This was not some spiritual resurrection, but a human resurrection. He ate fish, his his disciples felt of his wounds. And then, after a time, he rose, ascended to the Father's right hand, where he currently is interceding for his bride. 
Believe in this Christ. Turn to this Christ. Confess your sin and believe the gospel. And if you have any questions about that, please reach out to me at any time. Naomi's story is a testament to the fact that there is a hope for you and a hope for me and a good and a merciful God.